I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender. Just wanted to throw a very quick thank you so much on... (laughs) (laughs) He's shy. (laughs) What Elliot wants to say is... (laughs) Thank you for all of the lovely social media interactions, text messages, in person, so on and so forth. Um, Congratulations on our one year of making the podcast that we talked about on last week's episode and posted about on Friday. St. Patrick's Day, no less. Oh, hope you wore green. Get a pinch. We didn't wear green and nobody pinched us. Oh, well. Pinch me because I can't believe this is real. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, um, is that what you were going to say? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> you got so shy. Oh, I'm embarrassed. About what? You guys are all so nice. You all are so nice, and we're uh, excited to be starting year two now. Yeah, we're hitting the ground running. I mean, we're just doing what we usually do, but it's but still, still great. There's six smackaroonies. Oh, here they come. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Let's dig into the first of six macaroonies. We went to our favorite place, Metro Cinema, for a little matinee action and saw the 2008 drama, Wendy and Lucy. It was directed by Kelly Reichardt. This is our second Kelly Reichardt film. It was written by Kelly as well as Jonathan Raymond. It stars Michelle Williams as Wendy, Lucy as Lucy the dog. Yeah, Wally Dalton is security guard and Will Oldham as Icky. Synopsis is, over the summer, a series of unfortunate happening, happenings trigger a financial crisis for a young woman and she soon finds her life falling apart. What do you think about it? This being the second Kelly Reichardt film we've seen, the first being First Cow, 
now that I've got two in the bag, mm-hmm. I think her films are very much for me. I 100% agree. It's, uh, it's such an interesting thing when you see one film from a director and you like it. Doesn't necessarily mean you're going to like all of them. Mm-hmm. Once you've seen two, you're like, all right, I'll probably like most of them. Um, I totally can see why some people, these films aren't for them. Yeah. Like this is a short movie. It's like 80 some minutes, but it's slow. Mm-hmm. Short doesn't necessarily mean short. <laughs> I mean, it does, yeah. <laughs> but it didn't feel that way. Um, what I've noticed in the two films that we've seen that Kelly Reichardt has made is just this examination of the ins and outs of a single person's life. Mm-hmm. Um, Wendy and Lucy is very much contemporary. First Cow is very much not. And yet both are just about the everyday happenings for a single person. And then it tends to like culminate in something that just like breaks your heart and you don't even realize that's going to happen, but you've become so immersed into this person's world in an everyday way as opposed to like a Star Wars way. Yeah. When I was thinking about it, I kind of summed it up very similarly where Kelly Reichardt tells such beautiful and painfully human stories Mm -hmm. that destroy my soul in the best way possible. Um, And I think, yeah, to what you were saying about just pacing, I can see people getting deterred by Kelly Reichardt, you know, like say if they somebody was in the same position as us where they've seen First Cow and now they've watched Wendy and Lucy, I can see people starting to get deterred by the pace of a Kelly Reichardt film. However, if you're like us and you like a meandering story that has an emotional gut punch, this is for you. I'm all in on on Kelly Reichardt. I'm and she has a new film coming out that we're going to get to see soon called Showing Up, which I'm really excited for, which leads me into the Michelle Williams of it all. Yeah, I have to say, before you get into the Michelle Williams of it all, we have some absolutely fascinating connections threading between all of the different films we watched this week. And Michelle Williams is one connection between our first and last film. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about it. Okay, so Michelle Williams in Wendy and Lucy is magnetic. So is so she is in most of the things that she's in. I'm starting to realize that I really, really like Michelle Williams. I mean, what else have you really seen her in? I mean, the, the thing that I always kind of judged her for, unfairly so, was Dawson's Creek. Oh, I've never watched. You've watched? I haven't watched all, but when I was younger and I'd be like homesick from school, there'd be oh. a lot of Dawson's Creek on. So I'd watch Dawson's Creek and I she, not, I, is I was, she a main player in it. Yeah. Oh, I no, did not know that. I was kind of wrote her off as just like the whiny emo girl from it. But I think that was very unfair. And I think did a disservice to the range that Michelle Williams has, because I think she has one of the most unforgettable moments for me in film in a scene in Manchester by the Sea between her and Casey Affleck. Um, While I struggle with the Casey Affleck of it all, that scene and some of the things she says is one of the most powerful things I've ever seen. And I think in this film, she plays such, I I don't know how else to describe it, but just such a human character. Mm -hmm. There's so much I feel like the audience could relate with, with what she's going through, with the situation she's in just with with the the state of the world that's around her and she just 
plays it so realistically. So something that was interesting to me um, in watching this is that I actually think it's exploring a lot of similar ideas as a nomad land. Yeah. Yeah. Did. That's a good comparison. And I did like nomad land. Um, I haven't had a urge to rewatch it, but I remember when we did watch it being compelled by it. Mm-hmm. And yet seeing this, I connected in a human way to the ideas much more than I did in Nomadland. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Do you think it's, no, I don't even know. I'm trying to like rationalize why that might be. I, I feel like it's Nomadland is so much focused on, and I might be wrong in saying this, but more of a lifestyle, whereas mm. this is more focused out of a necessity. Yeah, that could that could be. I think it also is that the character of Wendy feels more like it could be me. Yeah, I agree. And even the um like the city that she's in feels like it could be any city. Mm, yeah. Whereas in Nomadland it feel like out in the desert and stuff doesn't feel relatable to me. Mm-hmm. Um and that's not saying that Films have to be relatable, but I just felt in terms of those themes and ideas. And I think when you're looking at something like how a person can end up houseless in a way that isn't typically how we think of it, there is a degree to which the question of could that be you comes mm-hmm. up and that that felt more close to me in this film. Yeah, I agree. Same for me. And I think that that's what allowed this film to wash over me a lot more and to be so much more impactful the other thing that was the animal part of it right like Mm -hmm. just asked you this morning if you could ever live without a cat and you said no (laughs) and this film does really explore the deep connection that a human can have with an animal and the and the lengths of which we're willing to go to for an animal that we love and care about Um, and that nothing will stand in our way to ensure that everything is okay with them. I mean, I'm sure it's the same with children, but like, I don't give a fuck about children. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think there's something about the connection that a human can form with an animal that like can keep you grounded when it feels like the world is falling apart. Yeah. You and I have had a lot of conversations multiple times because I think we just like (laughs) talking about this kind of stuff. But you'll be like, what do you like about having a cat? Or what do you like about having having Thompson in our lives? Or what do you like about having a pet? Whatever. Um, And I I always kind of go back to the fact that it always, when I start really thinking about it, it always fascinates me that it's two different species that are living together choosing not to kill each other (laughs) (laughs) which is i mean for all intents and purposes our cat could come up to us in the middle of the night and fucking chomp our jugular and kill us if he wanted to but he chooses not to he'd rather just sleep in our legs and purr and be happy (laughs) um and And we fight yeah of course but i think that the fact that we have these we're two different species that have our own unique ways of showing love and care and appreciation for each other and frustration with each other. We have these dynamic relationships that's something with something that is not like us. 
it, it kind of blows my mind a little bit and makes me really happy and grateful for that. And this film, I think, shows that without being sappy about it. Oh, like I was just, I just was. <laughs> yeah. A big old sap. <laughs> yeah. No, Did you I agree. know that Lucy is Kelly Reichardt's dog? No, that's cute. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Lucy was great. Lucy, Lucy was really cute because I saw, I don't know if Lucy's really well trained, but Lucy was one of those dogs that uh, was not always well behaved on screen. Like there was a moment where Wendy and Lucy were walking along and Lucy was jumping up and like pulling on the leash, like more so <laughs> taking Wendy for a walk. And that adds to the realism of it because you just see that so often, especially we've gone for walks with friends of ours that have dogs, new dogs and untrained dogs. And they're just they don't give a shit about what you want. They just they want to get off the leash. They want to just go. Um, but I liked that aspect of Wendy and Lucy's dynamic. What do you think about the absence or minimal use of score in a film? Uh, I I find it really effective, especially in Kelly Reichardt's films. Um, it just kind of it forces me to f- to sit in and examine my own feelings more. There's when there's no cues to tell me how to feel with music. Mm-hmm. I and I really appreciate that because I think it complements the kind of writing and directing that Kelly Reichardt does because she's trying to tap into this very human, very emotional and relatable type of storytelling. And the the lack of music makes you sit in it. And for me, that works really well. What about you? Oh, I think so, too. I think it's. um it's not until I watch a film with no or minimal score that I realize how dominant score is in most cinema and how much score is used to do the emotional work mm-hmm. or cue the emotional work. I'm mm-hmm. not sure which one. Maybe do is a little unfair, but it'll all of a sudden be like, oh, wow, yeah, there was no, there was no score. Like it was left to me to feel what I felt I needed to in that moment, right? And I think mm-hmm. that's really, really interesting. I mean, it's something we I think we talked about at length when we covered a Portrait of a Lady on Fire as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just, yeah, it just roots it in reality so much more because we don't always have music played. When we get upset, we don't have a music cue that's playing in the background. Nor do we have a music cue to foreshadow that something bad is going to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to let us know about two minutes ahead of time that like something's coming. Yeah. Like there's a really tense scene near the end of the film in this. And a lot of it's just kind of shrouded in darkness and the, with no music. How intense the scene is, is just built on, on visuals and putting you in, in the place of the characters. And it's a, it's a, you, you're not primed for it. There's nothing cueing you to when this might kind of reach an apex and start coming back down. Yeah, I feel like it just brings you into the story more. Now, I'm not saying I want no score in all my films, though. No. I feel like... Because it's, it's a more... It requires a little bit more brain power, for me at least, and I don't always want to do that. 
Yeah. Even if it's on a subconscious level, like we like having those music cues to know how to feel at certain points. But I feel like I said, I feel like for Kelly Reichardt's type of storytelling, no music works really well. And so that's what's so interesting to me, having watched this and having watched First Cow. Admittedly, in both of them at first, I'm like, okay, I'm kind of bored. My mind is kind of wandering. <laughs> and then at some point, I just all of a sudden I'm crying. And yeah. I'm like, oh, what? How did... How did that happen? <laughs> and sometimes it's at, you know, in this one, it was such a small moment mm. where all of a sudden I'm just bawling and I'm like, what is going on? Why am I crying? Mm. Um, so there's something about her work that I, I find really affecting for me. Yeah, me too. I'm glad that we're, but we both kind of experience it similarly. Yeah. And Michelle Williams is a frequent flyer in her films. So mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Interesting to continue watching them. I, um, after having liked both of these quite a lot on Letterboxd, a couple of people that I follow who I only know through Letterboxd were like, "Oh, well, you got to watch this one and this one and this one." Then and I'm like, <laughs> yeah. "Okay, yeah, we'll <laughs> I do." Will. Thank you. Yeah, this was really lovely, a really great experience. We'll be watching more Kelly Reichardt. How to make you feel? It made me feel moved by the mundane devastation that is life. That's really nice. I like how you put that. Thanks. How about you? I am all in for the emotional devastation that Kelly Reichardt is dishing out. I picked a mystery movie. Yeah, you did. I was really excited about it. I was like, I want to watch this. I want to watch this tonight. I want to watch this right now. I want to watch it. I want to watch it. Um, so I picked one of my personal all-time favorite movies, all-time favorite comfort movies, and I'll speak about that in a bit because some people are going to be like, excuse me, comfort movie? I picked the 1976 horror mystery, Carrie. Carrie was directed by Brian De Palma. It was written by Lawrence D. Cohen, and it is, of course, based on Stephen King's first novel. It stars the incredible Sissy Spacek as Carrie. Piper Laurie, ooh, not to Piper Laurie, but to Margaret White, <laughs> boo, <laughs> um, Amy Irving as Sue Snell, William Cat as Tommy Ross, and Betty Buckley as Miss Collins. If you've never heard of Carrie, wake up. <laughs> why don't you put on a little makeup? <laughs> um, if you've never heard of Carrie, I actually would recommend you pause this, go watch it, come back. Um, obviously, we're not going to get into spoilers, but I had a really deep desire while watching this to find somebody who knows nothing about it because it's so in the culture. Yeah. Like, even if you've never seen it, you you know, there's things we're going to talk about that are just, they're just, you say Carrie, you say prom scene. Like, there's, you just know it, right? Mm-hmm. Even if you've never seen the movie. And I had such a deep, deep, deep desire to find somebody who knows absolutely zero things about it and watch it with them mm-hmm. to try and re-experience it for the first time. And I was really hoping that Ashley, our good friend, been on the show, we talk about her a lot, had never seen it, uh, had never seen it and knew nothing about it. But unfortunately, she has seen it <laughs> and she remembers it. But to that point, um, I actually couldn't find a synopsis of the film that wasn't incredibly spoilery. So I took half of one and then wrote the second half. So this synopsis is coming at you by way of Kylie Burton. Oh, damn. Um, The second half after the comma. So 
Synopsis. Carrie White, a shy, friendless teenage girl who is sheltered by her domineering religious mother. That's from IMDb. Now here's a little KB coming at you. Comma. <laughs> Comma. Discovers a sense of power after being humiliated by her classmates. That's real good. We've seen this before. We've seen it together before, yes? Oh, yeah. More than once, probably. Yeah. I would love to see this in the theater. I haven't gotten a chance to do that yet. But what did you think of Carrie? This is an all-time fave. I love this. This is one of the best horror movies ever made. Uh, it's one of the best movies ever made, full stop. Yeah. Yep. Um, thank you for the correction, because that is correct. <laughs> um, I want to talk about the first time that we saw it and what the conditions were. Individually? Yeah. Okay. So for me, um, it was at a time in the summer where... <laughs> very very like stranger things where you would just like ride your bike around all summer and like go get slurpees and stuff and on this particular night i was with my best friend at the time his name is ben and his older brother and we were like okay let's go rent a bunch of horror movies from the video store video store has come up a lot this episode this is what i'm telling you <laughs> lots um, of connections so because at the video store you can rent seven for seven for seven so seven classics for seven nights for seven dollars. Uh, would HQ then? Yeah. I would take yeah, advantage of this like crazy in the summer. I would go and rent the, I'd rent seven horror movies for seven nights. Get like a bunch of Dr. Pepper and chips and garbage food and just stay at home and watch movies. Um, but we were like, let's go, let's go rent Carrie. We've never seen Carrie. So we did that. Got, went to the, uh, the gas station, got some licorice whips and got some Slurpees. And then on the bike ride home to go watch it, on a cro- in the middle of a crosswalk, I dropped my Slurpee. <gasps> and Was it a red Slurpee? It was blue. Oh. Because um, that would have been fitting. <laughs> I know. But I, I got across and I just like, because it was in the middle of a crosswalk and the light was going to change soon. I was like, we got to go. We got to like, just leave it. But uh, <laughs> my Ben's older brother he stopped and like started like scooping it up <laughs> back into the cup and gave it back to me. I'm like, thank you, but I'm not going to eat this. It's full of road. <laughs> um, but we got back to their place and we sat down and watched Carrie. And I just remember it melting my brain with yeah. how incredible it was. That's my first time. What about you? So... I can't pinpoint exactly what age I was. I know I was nine or older because I was living in the second house that my family lived in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do know that my mom, my two older sisters and me all watched it together in the basement. And it was so my family did watch a lot of movies together. But we very rarely agreed. I'm with four kids, two parents or some amount of time mm-hmm. um, we very rarely agreed on watching things and I don't have a lot of clear memories of like everybody being excited to watch something together but this was one of them but like my mom was excited to show all of us girls and like my brother and my dad weren't there that's cute yeah and and my mom had seen it in the theater I'm fairly certain in the 70s because uh, my dad loved movies and my mom loved popcorn and so they went to the movies a lot my mom also worked at the movie theater in her hometown, Rocky Mountain House. 
um, which she told me you were very cool if you worked at the movie theater. Like it was a very sought after job. Hey, same goes for the movie theater in Ladue. <laughs> Just saying. So, you know, movies are actually a pretty big part of her life too. Although I think she likes very different movies. Her, her movie watching style and her movie watching interests are very different from mine. So this was a rare night where like, even though the four of us girls didn't always like the same things, we all sat down and watched it together and I just remember being totally blown away. I think I was quite young. Like, I think I was nine or ten. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember my mom screaming so much <laughs> at the ending and then turning turning to us and being like, I knew it was coming and it gets me every time. Gets me um, every time. And it's such a like such a clear memory for me. And I just, yeah, I just remember being blown away by it and also really enjoying that process of watching it with the women in my family. That's really cool. Did, you, did think, you own it or did you rent it? Do you remember? I don't. TV? I don't remember. Or it could have been on TV that night. Hmm, okay. You know, like one of those things. I also think I watched it before I read the book. I'm fairly certain. Hmm. But that's all a little bit jumbled for me. Um, I feel like it. Carrie is so... Both the book and the movie are such a intrinsic part of my horror-loving DNA that like I can't even necessarily pinpoint all of the specifics it's just a part of me yeah that's that's really great like yeah i felt like when the first time i watched carrie this might sound a little cheesy but i felt like a bit of an awakening like i'd already kind of watched a lot of horror movies and liked a lot of horror movies but like it this just struck a chord that it had never been struck before in terms of a horror movie um and it's probably the fact that it's not just a great horror movie but an amazing film on the whole and and an amazing character study like with the character of carrie yeah also i don't i don't think we should get into it here but um the story behind stephen king writing the book is really good um and the book is also really awesome it's his it's his first fucking book and it is pretty solid i i have to mention one thing about it because i also i can't recall if carrie was the first stephen king book i read or the shining but they were the first two Stephen King books I read and they both just blew my mind. Um, so something that we're not going to talk about in this episode is that we rewatched everything everywhere all at once this week with your mom. We showed your mom it. Mm-hmm. Um, and a fun little connection between Carrie and everything everywhere all at once is that Stephen King wrote Carrie while he was working at an industrial laundry making one dollar and 60 cents an hour. Oh, nice. <laughs> so just said, just had to throw that out That's there. Great. Um, the movie itself though I want to start with saying that there are, you know, especially on Letterboxd where I follow some really thoughtful people, uh, people have written some really, I think, important things about how unnecessary the nudity is in the opening scene. Okay. Um, Because they're meant to be teenagers. Yeah. And specifically how the rest of the film really doesn't have that male gaze. Like it's really the characters aren't sexualized for the rest of the film and just a lot of people lamenting that in such a phenomenal film, it's a shame that that's the opening scene mm. just because there's so much yeah, nudity. And I, and I do remember as a young girl watching this being like, ah, too much nudity. <laughs> and like right out, right out of the gate too. You're just, it really catches you off guard. And I don't necessarily think it is sexual. Yeah. But it is nude bodies of people who are meant to be high school girls. Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to leave it at that. But some people have written some really 
thoughtful things about how I think particularly that disconnect between how the rest of the film isn't like that. So it's just a shame that the beginning is. Mm-hmm. There's other movies where it's like, ah, it's the whole way through and we just kind of have to put that aside to enjoy the film. But yeah, this one, it doesn't exist after that beginning. But I want to start with is a sissy motherfucking Spacek. Holy shit. This movie wouldn't yeah. be what it is if it didn't have her or somebody doing equally incredible work. Like with an actress who couldn't pull this off, this movie would not be great. Yeah, I just I would describe her as a force of nature in this movie. Um, cause she runs the gamut of playing like of playing this really meek and scared girl but then as as the story goes on and she starts gaining confidence and then she also you know at at certain points she becomes terrified and to do all of that and to have that character grow in ways that can be conveyed in just a look is really impressive so it's really cool to learn about this because it seems like that wouldn't have been an easy role to play mm-hmm. it's not necessarily a um sexy role like even and i mean like not necessarily in a like sexualized way i just mean it's not sexy (laughs) like yeah yeah yeah. so sissy spacek was so dedicated to the role that i guess she she was interested in in auditioning and she i think had connections to brian de palma and she called him because the day of the audition there also was auditions for some commercial which would be like a guaranteed quick job income right And she called him and said, you know, I'm kind of in this dilemma. Do I go out for this commercial? Do I come audition for your movie? What should I do? And he said, audition for the commercial. (laughs) And she was like, fuck you. I'm adding that part in. I don't know that she actually said that. But she sat down, read the entire book cover to cover. Mm. The auditions were the next day. Didn't sleep. Got up, put Vaseline all throughout her hair to make it look greasy and stringy. Put on an outfit that her mom made her when she, when Sissy Spacek was in the seventh grade and went and auditioned and got the part. Amazing. And then she, you know, I I have my own feelings about the whole, like, what do you call it when you, like, stay in role even when you're not filming? Oh, like method? Yeah. I I feel like that wouldn't be good for my mental health, but do what you got to do, people. And I don't know that Cissy Spacek was method acting, but she did isolate herself from the cast um, just to, like, maintain that sense of distance um, from them and not feel that friendliness with them. She decorated her entire dressing room with religious iconography. And this one's the most interesting to me, and I really want to look into it more on my own. She studied um, an illustrated Bible by Gustave Durez, looking specifically at the body language of people who were stoned for their sins. And apparently she starts and ends every scene of the film in one of those positions. Interesting. Yeah. Which gets me to another interesting thing that I learned. Because I'm not very well versed in biblical stuff. There's a very, 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 very creepy little thing in the closet mm-hmm. that she has to go into pray. It's not Jesus. Who, who is that? St. Sebastian. It's St. Sebastian. So this is interesting to me too, though, because St. Sebastian is apparently a saint for those who are persecuted for being Christians. Oh. And that little statue of him, so he was killed um, with arrows. Mm-hmm. His his body position and the being like pelted with arrows is like replicated in the film Mm -hmm. for a particular character. And it's, I think 
it's easy to conflate that and think that it's meant to be Jesus on the cross. It's actually not. It's meant to be St. Sebastian. That's interesting. Did, is there any like reason why? I couldn't find, I, I, I honestly, I couldn't find anything that helped me to understand if Brian De Palma was like very particular about like this being St. Sebastian instead of Jesus Christ, but it could have just been that that was a really creepy looking <laughs> thing to put in the closet. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, and just reading my own stuff about it and maybe I'm making meaning of something that was simply just like, this is creepy. Um, I read that St. Sebastian is known as like the patron saint of holy death. Um, mm. That he was a patron, patron saint of those persecuted for their faith, specifically persecuted for being Christians. And that um, he was known to have cured a woman of her muteness, which like also feels... Mm relevant to the film so i don't know if i'm just reading too much into that i also like could just like when we talked about the seventh seal last week medieval stuff biblical stuff game of thrones even i get really like sleepy reading it so i kind of gave up on the wikipedia page about saint sebastian it's really long i have to be honest so that's what i found that's interesting though because yeah like i always kind of wondered i'm like yeah he's posed in the same way that like christ died but he's not on a cross and he's like he's been impaled by arrows interesting well he so in the story of saint sebastian he was killed persecuted for his faith with arrows but then he was resurrected what like he was or not resurrected but he was like brought back like he yeah they're died. i don't know he like died or he didn't die or he almost died and like somebody got him like he off the tree that he had been pelted against and and he came back to life so it all it all kind of too much just so much so so many stories that i just don't know even somebody that went to catholic school growing up yeah did you ever go in your closet and pray also kind of a (laughs) kind of a link between this and our last film going into your closet and praying Yeah, yeah yeah um something that i think is really effective about this movie is it kind of weaves in and out of disorienting dreamlike states. Yeah. Yep. I agree. Um, even before it starts getting terrifying, there's just like this very seventies esque haze over some of these scenes. And then especially like by the time we get to the end of the film where that, that exists even, even more heavily there, there's just like this airy fairy kind of vibe to it. But it seems to be wielded very purposefully. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't surprise me that we were compelled by that when we were young and we continue to be really, both you and I, I think a lot of our favorite media challenges the idea of what is real, mm-hmm. even within the film. And so, yeah, there's this surreality to it at times. Yeah. and Not all the time, though. No. Well, and I think what's interesting is like that combined with the acting we were talking about and how the role of Carrie, if it was acted by somebody else other than Sissy Spacek and um, Laurie Piper, I feel like the combination of all of these things could have made this film feel very soapy. So this is interesting because Piper Laurie reading the script felt that the character was so over the top that she actually misunderstood that this was meant to be a quite intense drama horror. 
and thought it was a black comedy. And to this day maintains that she sees the film as a black comedy. Now I don't No, I don't think it's funny. I don't think I've, I've seen this movie many times as a like, like I'm fairly certain I saw it when I was nine or 10. I saw it throughout my preteen and teen years. I would be remiss to not say that I dressed as Carrie in grade eight for Halloween <laughs> and my mom helped me. <laughs> um, we found a, at a thrift store, we found a pink prom dress. She, she cut it apart to make it a little bit more like Carrie's dress. Um, and we put blood stains all over it. <laughs> and, and I did not win the costume contest because the students were voting and none of the students knew who I was. But all the teachers were like, are you Carrie? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, you know, I really, really, really liked Carrie a lot. And not once as a child, preteen, teenager, or adult have I found Margaret White funny. No. There's I'm like, horrified by it. There's like a couple lines that she says that we kind of joke about just in day-to-day -day life. But in the context of the movie. It's horrifying. Yeah. Not, it's, I think it's funny that she thought that it was over the top and ridiculous, but and going in and going into it acted that way, but how it still works is horrifying. Yeah, I mean, I I think to dismiss that character as over the top is to deny that there are are and have been and sadly will continue to be people who have parents who are abusive in that kind of way, in a controlling emotional way um, and it doesn't have to be within a context of religion there are some moments that this time around I think I felt sicker than I felt before because I'm just like that that is what parental abuse like a parent abusing their child in this emotional and controlling and physical way would look like yeah, and I think that another thing that adds to how upsetting that is is that now watching it, we are adults with young people in our yes, lives. Yeah, both as a teen as a teenager, uh, both as a teacher mm. for me, and of course as like an aunt. Yeah, it just makes me sick, right? So yeah, I think that Piper Laurie crushes it. Mm -hmm. I hate her. Yes. Uh, but, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, the one thing that you said off the top that I think is synonymous with Carrie is the prom scene. Um, it's so good. <laughs> it still gives me goosies. It's so good. It is one of the singular best sequences in film of all time. I think even people who are not necessarily big fans of the film which I found on Letterboxd, not everybody loves this film the way we do. Mm -hmm. Some people think it's boring. Some I, people just don't like that. it. Yeah. But even those people tend to agree that the prom sequence, from the minute of entering the prom to the minute of exiting the prom, is, and that's a pretty long sequence, mm -hmm. that it is phenomenal. Yeah. Um, after we finished watching this, we went onto YouTube and looked up the prom scenes of all of the subsequent remakes of Carrie to see how they compare to this original one. Validating the opinion I've held for a long time is that Carrie, it's 1976. 
should have never and does not ever need to be remade again. No, you know what um, Stephen King said about it? Hmm. it? And it was in reference to the newest one with Chloe Grace Moretz. And let me tell you, we watched the um, 2000, early 2000s made for TV one, and it is better. Than the the, yeah. the more recent Chloe Grace it Moretz is, one. Yeah, it's just awful. Uh, this was the very brief, very accurate quote from Stephen King. He said, the question is why when the original is so good. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it just nothing compares to it. It's There's no sense in trying to improve upon it. It makes me think of what uh, Neil Druckmann and Craig Mazin have said about adapting The Last of Us from video game to screen, where they said, if we don't have an idea that's better, then we're sticking with the original. Mm -hmm. idea and there's nothing that you can improve upon in this except maybe taking all that nudity out of the first scene yeah it's still yeah it's still powerful as soon as it kicks in it just gets under my skin and then all the way up to the end the ending gets under my skin still oh yeah it's like your mom said you know it's coming but even though it doesn't necessarily i don't know there's just something about this film, especially in the like last act, that just haunts me. Oh, yeah. It's so good. <laughs> I have two amazing things that I found out. So one is that when this was in theaters, Sissy Spacek would go into theaters just in the last like 15 minutes and just watch how people reacted to the ending. Oh, is Sissy Spacek just me? <laughs> <laughs> so fun. But this one I love. Um, so Stephen King and his wife, Tabitha King, saw Carrie on opening night And he said, this is a quote from him. In the row in front of us were these two huge men, each weighing about 230 pounds. They were screaming like children, grabbing each other around the necks. And one said to the other, that's it. That's it. She ain't never going to be right. (laughs) I turned to my wife and said, this is going to be huge. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he he took very little money for this film. Um, We watched the trailer. We we watched this on DVD because it wasn't streaming anywhere. Mm-hmm. And it had the trailer and the special features. And the trailer literally reveals the entire movie it, and spells Stephen King's name wrong. <laughs> yeah, right. Because he like he just wasn't he wasn't a big deal at the time. And he has said um he doesn't regret I think he got paid twenty five hundred dollars for the rights to this. Oh fuck. Um he doesn't regret it because he said, like, first of all, it it gave him clout, which allowed him to continue in his career but he says that this film is better than his book and he's just glad it exists and he thinks the ending is better than his ending and he thinks it's i'm pretty sure this is one of if not his favorite adaptation of his work um which says a lot in the pantheon of stephen king adaptations there's a lot of them there and there's a lot of stinky ones i mean this is is there with misery for me in terms of keeping the heart of the book and yet being a really amazing media in its own right. And I feel very similarly to it as I feel to The Last of Us where they enhance each other for me um, as opposed to The Shining where I have to think of them as two separate things. And I really love them both, but I have to think of them as distinct entities. Um, carry the book and carry the film I can kind of think of in companionship with each other. What about The Green Mile? Yeah, I can think of that. I've, I've only read The Green Mile once. Mm, yeah. Same. I've read Carrie and, and The Shining a lot and I've seen it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, last thing I want to talk about about this film is just the the music fucks me up. The music is 
the music gets kind of soapy. But it again, there's something about kind of the cheesiness of some of the music cues that just add to that dreamlike surrealism we were talking about and adds to the creep factor and just heightens the experience and kind of yeah it it gets it adds to the getting under my skinness of it all and it uses um part of the score from psycho but in kind of an interesting way it's it's funny because it's like a punctuation yeah like it's funny cuz i've never i mean to be fair i hadn't seen psycho until this past year but i i i know the psycho music but i never equated the two or made that link between the two I always just like, that's the Carrie music and this is the Psycho music. Their high school is also called Bates High or something like that. Yeah, yeah it's clever. clearly Brian De Palma really likes Psycho. Um, I have an interesting bit of trivia to to make a link between this and the final film we watched this week that I don't know if it's true, but I am compelled by it. Mm-hmm. Did you know Amy Irving, who plays Sue Snell, was married to Steven Spielberg? I did not know that. So, according to IMDb trivia, PJ Souls, who plays the mean girl with the amazingly iconic red cap, she said that Brian De Palma invi- would invite Steven Spielberg to the set because there were, quote, a lot of cute girls down here, and that Spielberg would hang around and, like, ask them all out. I don't know if that's true. And that Amy Irving accepted, and then they were married for four years, and they have a kid together. Oh, shit. But the Wikipedia page for Steven Spielberg says that he met Amy Irving when she auditioned for Close Encounters and she didn't get the role, but that's where they met. So I don't know which one's true. I can't give you the role, but will you marry me? But will you marry me? Regardless of what is true about how they met, Sue Snell was married to Steven Spielberg for four years and they have a child together. So many connections in these movies we watched this week. Also, Also, I just want to say too, girl in the red cap, don't know her name. PJ Souls. PJ Souls. Two iconic horror movies under her belt. Oh, yeah. Between Carrie and freaking the first Halloween. And while I don't agree with Piper Laurie that this is a black comedy, there are so, there's this really strange sequence with like th- the three men going to a tux shop. <laughs> that is like one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And then there's a scene with PJ Souls like and her friend like in getting their hair done and it's setting in a big dryer and her cap is on top of the dryer. Like she's always wearing that cap, including and in the, the um, and that prom f- scene. And that friend that she goes there with is the freaking she's graced the secretary from Ferris Bueller's day off. Strange, strange connections. <laughs> I do have to say though, cause I didn't know this and I think it's amazing. Did you know that Sissy Spacek and Piper Laurie were nominated for Academy Awards for this? Holy shit. So Sissy no. Spacek was nominated for Best Actress and Piper Laurie was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. They didn't win, but they were both nominated. How old was Sissy Spacek when this came out? Do you I know? don't know. But That's I mean, impressive. you know, when we talk, there's been a lot of talk this year in particular about, or in the past few years about like Tony Collette not being nominated for Hereditary, Mia Goth not being nominated for Pearl. And, you know, Kathy Bates won for Misery. Science of the Lambs won Best Picture. So I don't think it's true that the Academy, I fucking hate the Academy, but I don't think it's true that horror is always dismissed. But but to have like to have Jamie Lee Curtis win and go up there and thank horror fans and to have the first science fiction Best Picture winner, to have something like Science of the Lambs win, 
to have something like Get Out win an Oscar, like seeing more genre films get recognized on what, you know, for all intents and purposes on Hollywood's biggest stage paves the way for more of these kinds of films to get the, get the sort of distribution that they should get. But I mean, 1970s and Sissy Spacek was nominated for this film as she should have been incredible. And before we cap it off, I do want to say one of the best pieces of television I've ever seen is an episode of Castle Rock mm-hmm. with Sissy Spacek in it, um, which really can be watched as a standalone episode. But I do like both seasons of Castle Rock. It, it was canceled, but it was this. <laughs> I mean, I'm a huge Stephen King fan. I have a whole bookshelf dedicated just to him on one of the like five bookshelves in our houses. <laughs> houses. We have a single house. <laughs> <laughs> um, but many bookshelves in this house. Castle Rock, uh, if you haven't heard of it, was this show that kind of took the lore of Stephen King and then was making something new with it. Um, and I really liked the first season and there's just this phenomenal, phenomenal episode with Sissy Spacek. I don't remember what it's called. I think it's the queen or it's something about chess. Yeah, I can't remember. It's so long ago we watched it. I've watched just that episode a few times though. Um, and I think she just was so, so, so fantastic in it. The queen, it's called the queen. So it's episode seven of season one. Um, and I, I highly, highly recommend it, although I think the whole show is quite quite good if you like Stephen King. Second season is focused on misery. Mm-hmm. I could go on about Carrie Forever. Might be interesting to do a daddy deep dive at some point, although, yes, we hear you. I, we've never been requested more ever to do a particular thing. We will be doing a deep dive of The Last of Us season one. Mm-hmm. Um, so Carrie will have to take a backseat for a little <laughs> while. How does Carrie make you feel? Reaffirmed in my stance that this should never be remade again. <laughs> this is a incredible movie. This is one of the best movies. How does it make you feel? It makes me feel just an angry, bitter, sad sense of comfort. Like there's something about this movie that is heartbreaking, mm-hmm. that is infuriating, that is beautiful. Like it just... Saddening. All of it at once. It's it's really it's really lovely, and I will be watching it forever and ever and ever. Mm-hmm. Amen. I'm excited for the day to come where we can show it to our nieces. <laughs> you think we'll ever be allowed to do that? <laughs> I don't know. I'm like I'm so nervous because we got we got in trouble. I feel like we've told the story before, but we got in trouble for showing our niece uh, Edward Scissorhands at a time where she was maybe not prepared to experience Edward Scissorhands and some of the more uh, scarier aspects of Edward Scissorhands. So ever since then, we've kind of been walking on eggshells when it comes to, okay, we want to start showing them scary movies or what, what, how can we start introducing them to more scary movies? I feel like our oldest niece is getting there. And I feel like the time will come when they want to watch them with us as opposed to the other way around. Yeah. How to look at that. Take us somewhere new. Oh, man. We watched a lot of slappers this week. Um, I wanted to watch something fun. So my mystery movie pick was the 1994 action-adventure thriller Sped. No, it's just Speed. (laughs) It was uh, directed by Jan DeBont and written by Graham Yost. 
It stars uh, always wonderful Keanu Reeves as Jack, Dennis Hopper as Howard, Sandra Bully as <laughs> Say her name right. Sandra Bullock as Annie, Joe Morton as Captain McMahone, and Jeff Daniels as Harry. Uh, the synopsis is a young police officer must prevent a bomb exploding aboard a city bus by keeping it above 50 miles per hour or for you Canadians out there about 80 kilometers per hour. Yeah, I wanted to revisit it because it's just I was just craving a silly action romp. And I know that this is one of the rare action movies that you like. I love this movie. <laughs> so let's get into it. What do you think of Speed? I love this movie. I love this movie. <laughs> so it started and I, I don't think have we ever watched it together? If we have, it was a long ass time. Yeah, like I haven't seen this in a long time, but I watched it a lot as a teenager. What do you What do you love about it? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. I can't even begin to explain it. It like, it's so thrilling. It's yeah. so thrilling. So I think the thing is, it is an action movie, but more than that, it's a close circuit psychological thriller. Mm-hmm. You know, like I would liken it to Panic Room, to, you know, we revisited cellu- cell, cellular, 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 and and phone phone booth. Yes, oh, <laughs> they're very literal titles. Uh, panic Room, Phone Booth, Cellular, <laughs> Speed. Uh, cellular and Phone Booth didn't quite hold up, but I loved those when I was younger too. Mm-hmm. So I think I am very, I am very drawn to the stress of we have to solve this, and there. I don't know. It almost feels like a puzzle box or an escape room, or mm-hmm. like there's a degree of having to be clever involved in it. I just love it. Um, I have a very memorable story of watching this movie in grade 10 with a group of friends. Um, not even friends, just a group of people that I was in uh, advanced placement English with. Mm-hmm. And we had recently started doing film in advanced placement English. And we just like watched it and we're just like, oh my goodness, look at all the literary stuff. We were like foreshadowing and dramatic irony. And like, um, and then we were like, oh God, movies are ruined for us forever. But that was one of the first movies I remember like looking at with a film studies eye, which is hilarious. That's amazing. It's hilarious. Um, which begs the question, should I teach speed? Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> the answer is yes. Funny part about this though, is you know that I love this movie. I know that I love this movie. I hadn't seen it in so long, but I got really excited when you put it on. Then I was like, what if it, I don't like it as much as I remember, but spoiler <laughs> alert, I do. But when it started, I was just like, what boring ass action movie are you putting on? Jesus. Like it looked like yeah, just a boring ass action movie. And then as soon as I saw it was an elevator, I was like, oh my God, is this speed? And then I saw Keanu Reeves and then Dennis Hopper. And I was like, yes, Sandra Bullock. <laughs> um, Dennis Hopper's really creepy in it. He's really good at uh, playing a villain. He loves chewing the scenery and it's just a delight to watch. Like there's a degree, and I said this while we were watching it, where this feels like a much more elevated, exciting like episode of Criminal Minds, mm-hmm. yeah. which I like. You know, like trying to figure out like who is doing this. I- I'm compelled by that kind of stuff too. The like, like a seven, yeah. where who is the person doing this and why are they doing it? Mm-hmm. I like that. Um, but at the end of the day, this movie is just like honestly so thrilling. Yeah, I mean, and even though I watched this a ton when I was younger, 
I like rewatching it this week. It is still thrilling as hell. It's so stressful, but like so exciting. Yeah. This is one of the coolest things I've ever read and like whatever, make fun of me for this being one of the coolest things I've ever read. Um, when they were doing test screenings for this movie, I kind of like that Stephen King moment where he turned to his wife and was like, this is going to be huge. Um, the 20th Century Fox people in the test screenings, like I just picture them looking at each other and just be like, yes. Uh, they noticed that in all of their test screenings, when people had to go to the washroom, they would walk backwards out of the theater uh, nice. because they didn't want to miss anything. And they were like, we've got a hit on our hands. Like this is. <laughs> I just imagine those people like doing that thing where they're backing out. And then as soon as the screen is out of sight, they like hustle. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> but honestly, if I saw this is another one, Carrie and Speed, which I would love to see in the theater. I would lo- and I would yeah. love to like Carrie. I would love to watch Speed with someone who's never seen it before. Yeah. Well, and what's great too, and we'll watch it someday on the show, is that another film that I believe is directed by Jan DuPont that I showed to you that you really loved is Twister. Oh, yeah, yeah, I really like Twister. (laughs) And it has a a similar kind of overall vibe. Did he make that volcano one too? Dante's Peak? Yeah. No, I don't think so. Similar vibe though. Yeah. And I liked that too. Yeah. Oh, fuck. That'd be such a great little film festival. It's just like speed, Dante's Peak, (laughs) and uh, Twister. We need a fourth one. Panic room. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> something that I really, I, I really like that story because I, I, I agree. Like it just, it hooks you. And because of the simplicity of it, just for that you got from the synopsis, they have to keep this bus going over 50 miles per hour. And the stress of just that very simple task. It's the same with phone booth. You have, he has to stay on the phone in the phone booth no matter what. <laughs> but something I, I I like about this movie is I feel like this is Keanu at his most cocky. Yeah. Like he, this is very kind of atypical Keanu Reeves where he's just like this hot shot, this hot shot, <laughs> young police officer, nothing to lose, willing to take all the risks. Um, But like, I feel like he's never really, I don't get the vibe that he's a huge asshole. No, I like him in it. Um, so is it Jan DeBond or is it Jan DeBond? Oh man, I hope it's Jan DeBond. I didn't look up pronunciation. I've always called him Jan. I'll call him DeBond. Um, he says he casts Keanu Reeves. And I, and I take some issue with how this is said, but I'm curious what you, what you think of this. That He cast him for this role because he felt, quote, that Keanu is vulnerable on screen. He's not threatening to men because he's not that bulky, but he looks great to women. Yeah, it looks great to men too. God damn. He does look great. I have been lamenting that like Keanu Reeves was my um second oldest sister, my sister Britt. Um her like number one celebrity obsession growing up. Like Britt was obsessed with the Matrix. I've I've seen a lot of not great Keanu Reeves movies because I would watch them with her. And I chose Johnny Depp. Oops. Wish that had flipped. <laughs> Wish I had Keanu. And I was lamenting that on Letterboxd and somebody was like, Keanu Reeves has made over a hundred movies. There's there's still hope that he can be your number one actor of all time. <laughs> that my next closest are Samuel L. Jackson and Willem Dafoe. I've watched 45 Johnny Depp movies and I've watched 25 Samuel L. Jackson movies and 24 Willem Dafoe movies. So there's I still have to watch a lot. I've seen 17 Keanu Reeves movies. But if I watch three more John Wicks, I'm at 21. There you go. 
Um, um, yeah. What I like about the character of Jack from Keanu Reeves is that he's not, is that he's not a typical action hero. He's, I've, I put him in kind of the same sort of category as John McClane from Die Hard in that some of the decisions he makes are not like he's this unstoppable hero. Some of the decisions he makes create problems for him that he then he has to solve it later. Um, that's what's great about this is it's it's not just action, it's also problem solving, and I like that part of it. Mm-hmm. I think it's quite clever. Did you know that DeBont was the cinematographer on Die Hard? I think it did. So it's, you know, yeah. connection there. They they do have what I like about this, I like and Die Hard's a closed circuit movie too, right? Yeah. And it's a problem solving movie and a like how does he cleverly get himself out of this? Something I really liked about watching it this time is I think neither you or me had really conceived of the fact that 50 miles per hour is not 50 kilometers per hour. Yeah. And being adults who drive often, we looked up what it is and it's 80 kilometers per hour. And we were like, holy shit. Well, <laughs> like, like that is so fucking fast for a bus to be going. And like when and you, you can't stop, when you put it in perspective of the turns that the bus has to make. And having to stay going at least 80 kilometers an hour going around a turn in a giant bus. And like, let's be honest, they're not going 80 kilometers an hour. They're easily going 60 miles per hour, which is like getting to 90 to 100. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We started equating this to like, oh, my goodness, that's the White Med. Oh, my goodness, that's the Hende. Oh, my goodness, that's Highway 2. <laughs> yeah. If you're from Edmonton, you'll be familiar. <laughs> but like making a fucking breakneck turn on a bus that's going for all intents and purposes, 100 kilometers an hour. Doing that in a car is insane. Let alone doing it on a bus. Um, what, do you th- what do you think of the dialogue in this movie? Some of it is very like action movie cheese, but some of it feels very real, especially once we get to the, the bus and the people on the bus. Like, I, I find, um, I found Sandra Bullock really compelling. Yeah, she's great in this. I loved Miss Congeniality around this time too. And I don't know if that will hold up, but she's awesome in this. And she. She plays such a big role to the plot of the movie. She does. And she's her and Keanu are both like such mega babes in this. And like she, I don't think I've ever really had a crush on her because she played a lot more like hyper feminine characters. Um, She's got a little bit more of that like swag in this. And yeah. it's pretty darn cute. Um, but speaking about dialogue, mm-hmm. so somebody whose films were films and TV shows we're pretty familiar with actually is the uncredited writer of the film, oh. um, who was brought in to rewrite the film predominantly because they felt the dialogue wasn't good. Hmm. And that person is Joss Whedon. Oh yeah. So Joss Whedon, not a great human being. It sounds like from what's been revealed in the last handful of years. Yeah. But having watched Buffy, having watched Cabin in the Woods, um, that makes a lot of sense to me. Like the 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 clever and yet sometimes cheesy dialogue mm-hmm. is very much his signature. Yeah. Where like, it's like fun and self-aware in how like goofy it is. Yeah, like I'm I'm kind of thinking about it. I mean, this dialogue is no worse or better than an Avengers movie. Yeah. Oh yeah, he did Avengers, yeah. Yeah. But but I kind of like it. Like it's that it's very evocative of the type of dialogue in Buffy where like it's mm-hmm. it's self-aware of its own genre and it's having fun within it. 
mm-hmm. without taking itself too seriously or going way, way, way too hammy. Yeah. So yeah, interesting little interesting little, little thing there. That is that is interesting. I wanted to ask you a question at the risk of being superficial. This is not my favorite Keanu haircut. What is your favorite Keanu haircut? Uh, I I really like him with uh, longer-ish hair, not as long as John Wick, but longer than The Matrix. So Mm. between like Bill and Ted and my own private Idaho. Okay, yeah. That's good. 90s heartthrob hair. Yeah. Apparently they were really pissed that he got his hair cut that short because they felt that he didn't look like it wasn't. It didn't accentuate his attractiveness, apparently. I don't think it looks bad by any means, but I think that he, I think that Keanu looks really good with longer hair. I mean, I feel like it lends itself to the character because he's kind of oh, like, yeah. he's kind of like tactical cop guy. Yeah, it makes sense for his job. Yeah. I think, and I still think he's hot as hell. Yeah, but it's not my favorite. I, I think I like him. I agree. Like kind of, yeah, like Bill and Ted, My Own Private Idaho. I don't think John Wick's bad. I don't mind John Wick hair. No, I don't mind I, I quite it. like Neo from the Matrix 1, not shaved head, but like kind of the the hair he's got there. It's got it's got a little bit of length, but and it's and it like has a little bit of movement to it. That's that's some good Keanu. He's just very very beautiful and he seems like a very kind person in real life. Um cool story, you want to hear a cool story? Hit me with it. So there was a real life incident of a schoolboy saving a bus full of people when the bus he was on, the driver had a heart attack while they were driving. Um, and he climbed onto his lap, jumped on the brake pedal, and pulled it to the side of the room or side of the road, saving everyone. When people asked how he knew what to do, he said he saw that bus movie. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> that bus movie. <laughs> so if uh, you're ever in that kind of a situation, that's sick. Just pull a Sandy Bullock. That's awesome. I don't know. This movie is really good. I really like it. I really want to watch it with someone who's never seen it. I'm going to text Ashley when we're done this because maybe she hasn't seen this one. <laughs> um, Ashley, if you're listening and I haven't texted you yet, text me. Yeah. There's actually some pretty great diversity in this in this film that kind of surprised me. Like it, obviously, when I was watching this when I was a little kid, I wasn't as aware of. But now, watching with a more critical eye, there's and there's depth to like there's depth to some of these characters, and there's a reality of some of these characters that I or like kind of this like grounded in reality of some of these characters that yeah, I these really like. Secondary characters in with in the bounds of what's the genre of the film. I think are actually given a fair amount of nuance. Yeah. Um, I also, I would be remiss to, to not point out that these kinds of movies um, get me really emotional. These like strangers who end up in a stressful situation together and end up working together. It reminds yeah. me a lot of how emotional I get during the, um, that one sequence in the dark night with the fairies. Mm, yeah. Where like I actually was feeling emotional at times where I'm like, look at these people, like like there's moments where people are incredibly stressed out as as I would be if I was on a bus with a bomb on it, and all of a sudden there's like a SWAT member on the bus being like, There's a bomb on the bus. Well, but there's just like strangely in this action movie, 
I feel a hope for humanity. But then when I get really cynical, I think like that's not what would really happen. Well, I think what it does kind of capture, and I think there is some truth to this, is that I feel that the default for humans when they get into a situation like this is to go selfishly of like, how am I, how, what, what can I do to make sure that I survive? And the, and I think they do explore that a little bit. Yeah, I agree. Um, but I think that there, you could reach a point as time goes on where it becomes like, we need to work together to make this happen. And then like, how are you, I said this when we were watching them, like, how are you not bonded for life to these people after the fact? How do you not at least have like a text chain if it happened now? <laughs> <laughs> I think they do. I think they get together once a year and they hang out and they hug each other. And I think it's nice and lovely. Also, in a week of making connections, I just thought of this. Alan Ruck is in Speed, who played Cameron in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> so that's two people from Ferris Bueller's Day Off that we've seen this week. Yeah, weird connections in these ones. Uh, I was so happy to revisit this and have it hold up as well as it does and to be as incredible yeah, it's as it really, is. It's really good. Uh, how to make you feel? Speed always from my teenage years to now just has me white knuckle thrilled the whole time. And I know how it ends and I know where it's going and still I'm like on the edge of my seat. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. You? Just thrilled and delighted. Movie fucking slaps. Hey, Kylie, do you like movies? I do. Elliot, do you like movies? I like movies. So what a just serendipitous thing that... On the one year anniversary of the day we released our first two episodes of the podcast, March 17th, a really exciting new Canadian movie called I Like Movies was playing at our favorite movie theater, Metro Cinema. And so we took ourselves on a little celebratory date where we got some vegan sushi Mm -hmm. and got some local coffee, not coffee. I have London Fog, you have chai, but you know, (laughs) coffee. And went and saw the movie I Like Movies with some newer friends who like movies who we met through the movies. <laughs> like literally met these people through the fact that we all use Letterboxd and all go to Metro Cinema and the five of us watch this movie together. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we saw I Like Movies. It's a 2022 comedy. Although I would, I think IMDb doesn't quite have this movie all figured out because the cast doesn't even all have... Um, the actors don't have their like character names beside them on IMDb. Oh. So I would call this a comedy drama. Yeah. It's directed and written by Chandler Levesque. It stars Isaiah Lenthen as Lawrence Queller, Romina Dugo as Alana, and Krista Bridges as Lawrence's mom. The character doesn't even have a name on IMDb. So oh. I'm going to say Lawrence's mom right. is the name. Uh, The synopsis, socially inept 17-year-old cinephile Lawrence Queller gets a job at a video store where he forms a complicated friendship with his older manager. I was really excited for this. How can you not be with a name like I Like Movies? Yeah. (laughs) And knowing that it was Canadian, um, Chandler Levac is a woman. Yeah. Great name. Mm -hmm. Parents like friends or something? (laughs) I don't know. I love it. Um, and it was really special to see this particular film on that particular day. What did you think of? I like movies. Yeah, I, I echo. I was very excited for this one as well. Um, and to see it on the anniversary of the show was really special. I found this film pretty affecting. Mm -hmm. It was hilarious. Like one of the funniest movies that I've seen in the theater in a long time. 
Uh, there were some real good emotional beats and I found myself relating to the characters in this film and just, just some of the themes in the film and some of the <laughs> locations in this film, <laughs> I just saw myself in. Um, I, I made this comparison after the fact, but I might walk it back a little bit. I made this comparison to Superbad and that this is the much better version of Superbad now. So like when Superbad came out and I saw it, like I was like 17 or 18, I was like, oh my God, I feel so seen in this movie. This is just what like high school is like. And this is, this is what it means to graduate and all of this. Uh, I felt like this kind of told that story a little bit better. It's a little bit less obnoxious. It's definitely in a more of a comedy drama genre than just like strictly comedy. But I felt shades of it that and it gave me that same sort of feeling that I liked. But this is a much better movie than super bad. So here's the thing that I am um, on the car ride home from the theater. I was like, oh, I have something I want to say. Do I say it now? Do I save it? Do I save it? Do I, do I say it? Do I save it? And I decided to save it. So I'm going to say it now. Okay. Um, I have a guess that you felt that way about super bad because super bad was meant to appeal to you at 17. Now, when we've watched, we rewatched Superbad and we were like, oh my goodness. And we felt kind of icky about it yeah. and we didn't like it. Now, I have a feeling that 15, 16, 17, 18, even maybe 19 year olds watching I Like Movies might not like it. Yeah. But that looking back on it when you're older, you would be able to recognize yourself in it. Mm. Like, I would be, I am really curious. So I have a handful of um, graduated students who I think will seek this film out who love film. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if they will be able to see themselves in it or if it's too close to home to be able to look at. Do you know what I mean? I do. And I, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. There's I a, um, a graphic novel that I read as part of a, a study with beginning teachers um, called My Perfect Life by Linda Berry which is about a um, teenage girl. And we had these really wonderful conversations in, in the study amongst ourselves about how a lot of us uh, women really related to the character in My Perfect Life. And it is a tricky, tricky, tricky book. Like it is highly upsetting. Um, and we said we felt like somebody at that age probably wouldn't be able to connect with it. And right. that if we had read it at the age that the character was, we wouldn't have been able to connect with it. And this really reminded me of that, that question of at what point can you look back and laugh at yourself and also have empathy for yourself and also like a sadness and like a, a sense of like, I wish things had been different for you and also a like, but you were pretty cool and like all of those things wrapped up in, in one. Right. Yeah. Because let's be honest, Lawrence is a little annoying. Yeah. But I'm able to look at Lawrence and be like, I was a little annoying. Oh, yeah. And I don't think if I saw that at that age, I might be put off by that. Mm -hmm. I'm not annoying. <laughs> yeah. I just like movies. Yeah. Well, and there's like this very real teenage entitlement that is on display in this movie that I know that I've... I, that I've felt like I, I deserve to have this, or I, I think that this, it makes sense that I'd have this and like you're, you're a teenager. So it's like the world's in front of me. So I should have everything that I want. And the film doesn't let Lawrence off the hook for that. 
No. But it does have a lot of empathy for him. Like it's neither a full like critique of him, but neither is it like a presentation of him as perfect or amazing or who we should want to be. And I think someone who is similar to Lawrence might not, might not, thing might, might not be able to connect with at that particular moment, the critique of him. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. I think another thing too, with this film that could, you know, the, the, the former students you were talking about that could potentially inhibit their ability to connect with this is that this is set at a very particular time. I know like this movie is just made for us. Like it is made for a Canadian millennial who was obsessed with movies when they were a teenager. And like, specifically yeah in the aughts and i think even more specifically in a smaller suburb like smaller yeah, suburban smaller town. canadian suburb for sure so like it was made for us like it the opening scene i was like cackling laughing because i was like this was me yeah this was me oh my god like it's there's so many elements of this movie that just spoke to my soul mm-hmm. um yeah the like the opening scene, I kind of have like a, a list of things <laughs> that I want to talk about. So like, I mean, just first off, just the fact that it's Canadian, like seeing Canadian money on screen will always just make me go, whoa. Especially like it is Canadian money from the aughts. It's like before we moved to our like plastic maple money. smelling plastic money and had our like <laughs> those bills that tore and ripped and my yeah. dad always had cash on him and I just like, yeah, <laughs> you know, how many blue $5 paper bills have I counted in my life? Yeah. And like we both worked retail, which we'll get into more. How many times did we in the aughts have to close out a till at the end of the night counting that kind of money? It's yeah. just like it, I haven't seen paper Canadian money in so long that it was like such a nostalgia. Yeah. Um, but also just like there's something whenever you sh- – I see like media that's been shot in a Canadian suburb, like in the last of us or in this movie. I'm just like, these look like Canadian suburbs. In Tegan and Sarah's high school. Yes. Like it, these are Canadian houses. Yeah. These are Canadian suburban houses. So all of the Canadiana about it all, the freaking music. So it opens the movie with like a song from swollen members <laughs> Um, and there's references to Sub 41 and Big Shiny Tunes. <laughs> um, there's a song by, not by choice, like this very, very niche pop punk band from the early aughts that I listened to a lot. And I was just like, oh my God, I can't believe this is in here. So just so much of that nostalgia tripping was happening through the music. And then the movie references. Oh my goodness. And I feel like I got more of them because of stuff we've watched and starting bad dad, rad dad. But if you know, you know mm-hmm. the movies that are being referenced and the filmmakers that are being referenced. It's so, it's so great. The other really relatable thing for me here was the idea of leaving high school and being in the arts mm-hmm. as you know, like when I was in high school, I was really into photography and making videos and stuff. So I was like, I want to I want to go on and and do that in university, but what does that look like? And there's there's so much of that wrapped up in this film. Um 
I also really related to making off-topic videos for class in school <laughs> where it's like it's Me a too. social studies project where you you need to do like a report or something. It's like, I'm going to make a video with my friend, but it's just the two of you goofing around and having fun making a video. And then you make bloopers that you throw at the end of the video to show the class. Um, <laughs> yeah, like that, like that felt very relatable. And the whole sequence around that made me made that feel very relatable. And also the the biggest thing is just watching a ton of movies and working in a video store. But you worked at Blockbuster. I did too yeah. for one day. They hired me without checking my age and didn't tell me that you have to be 16 to work there, I think because of like renting particular films out to people. Mm -hmm. And then they were like, oh shit, you're not 16. Just kidding. You can't work here. And then I got a job at a bookstore instead. And hence I'm an English teacher and not something else. I don't know. Yeah. I'm going to blame Blockbuster for that one. Also, we would have probably worked together. Yeah. Which yeah. like maybe is a good thing that that didn't happen. Yeah. Um, but you got to work at Blockbuster. I wanted to work at Blockbuster. Yeah. Damn you for being seven months older than me. Yeah. Yeah. I worked at Blockbuster till the very end. You truly did. You even got moved to different stores as they were closing down. Yeah. I literally worked at the Blockbuster in Leduc on the last day that Blockbusters everywhere existed. Um, and just packing up all the leftover copies of Rob Sest, a poorly made documentary about Robert Pattinson. <laughs> Did you find the um, the scenes in the, it's called sequels in this, mm -hmm. um, relatable in terms of working in a blockbuster? Oh my like God. Like the stuff they were doing. There was an inventory scene and I leaned over to you and said, did you ever do inventory at blockbuster? Oh, yeah. And it was, it was, it was too relatable. Inv doing inventory at blockbuster sucks because yeah it's always you set the goal of like okay let's try to get done by 2 a.m but yeah you just you have to scan everything in the store my my least favorite part of doing it was the uh snacks because there's a lot of rolls of rollos and sweet tarts and you have to scan all those fuckers i worked at indigo as long as you worked at blockbuster oh uh, maybe not but i worked no probably because i started working there before you started working at blockbuster but you worked at blockbuster longer um, for anyone listening not in Canada, Indigo is like the equivalent of Barnes and Noble or like, I don't know what it is in the UK. I know some people in the UK and Australia are here. It's, it's our big chain bookstore in Canada's chapters are Indigo. I never did inventory. I always managed to get out of it. I also never did in inventory at David's Tea when I worked there. Oh man. I don't know. I don't know how I managed to not do it. That's great. Yeah. Jealous. There's also, uh, they reference chapters in this movie. That's like chapters. <laughs> it's all of it. It's like the Shopper's Drug Mart, the Dollarama, the Cineplex. Like we are seeing stores that we go to. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. But that was something about this film that like, I don't think I've ever seen done so well, which is showing what it's like to work in retail as a teenager when many of your coworkers are adults. Yeah. And the really... And not just retail, but like that kind of a like part-time job where for some people it's a part-time job, the teenagers. Yeah. And for other people it's not. It's their careers or kind of like a stopgap where they're going to stay there for a while, right? Like when I worked at Indigo, I had coworkers who were, who were in university, right? I had mm -hmm. my managers who were adults and had been doing this for years. I worked at 
the bowling alley that my grandparents once owned but had sold um, when I was 18, 19. And I worked with like some like 30 year olds. Right. And you develop these really interesting connections and friendships that are often quite temporary. Yeah. And you have these deep conversations with people who you probably otherwise never would have met and never would have talked to so much. Yeah. It's such a unique thing. Mm -hmm. And I thought they captured it so well. Yeah. Retail jobs bring to like the staff of a retail job and working on the staff of a retail job. It's the most eclectic group of people. (laughs) Yeah. Because in that, in those kinds of scenarios, there's typically one thing you know what? I That's not even true. I was going to say there's like one thing that brings you together. It's like whatever the store sells, but it's not even necessarily true. It's just like maybe that's the one place that a person could get a job. Mm-hmm. They may, if it's a video store, they may hate movies, but that was the one place that hired them. So, and yeah, and it, oh my God, it nailed the dynamic between like a manager who's older and has been there for a while and the dynamic between that person and a teenager. Yeah, there's one thing that Alana says to Lawrence at one point that was like painfully real. Yes. Where I'm like, oh man, like that feels so true of even myself not as a manager when I worked more at David's Tea and I was a little bit older than some of the people who were working there. Mm -hmm. But also the way that I can now perceive the older folks I worked with when I was a teenager working at Indigo mm-hmm. or a, or a really young adult working at the bowling alley. Um, and I was just like, that line like nailed it in a way that I hadn't actually ever thought of before. Yeah. Well, and the fact that like these older people who are managers that are working with teenagers all day or mostly it's this, it, it, it so accurately represents the you know these these older managers wanting to be like still come across as cool but also wanting to share their lives and be relatable i experienced so much of that in my retail jobs and i've just met so many people like alana mm-hmm. in my retail jobs yeah, like i said this was very real it was so so relatable um uh, it reminded me of how like film broy my taste in music not in music. Well, music maybe too. No. How film broing my taste in movies was when I was a teenager. Hall Fight Club. <laughs> Full Metal Jacket, which is directly referenced in the Stanley Kubrick. Yes. <laughs> which like not to say I don't like some of that now, but I've diversified <laughs> out what I watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and that feeling when you're that age that like you're the only one who has ever seen these things and like you are the coolest person in the world for having seen it and you won't hear anything about any other type of movie other than like film bro movies. Yeah. Yeah. Newsflash. You're not the only person that's seen fight club. (laughs) Nope. Nope. Um, But on top of like the real workplace stuff, this, this also tackles some very real life emotional things, whether it be friend dynamics, workplace friend dynamics or family dynamics. Yeah. Like it, when it goes there, it's actually really heavy and quite complicated. Yes. And there's some complicated dad stuff in this, but don't want to really get into it because it's it's not necessarily um, something that is obvious from the beginning. Yeah. 
But there's some complicated dad stuff and some complicated parent stuff that I think is handled really complexly and allows for the messiness of it. Mm -hmm. And the friend stuff too, like the relationship between Lawrence and his best friend Mm -hmm. is really complicated and feels also very true of high school, but in particular the ways that people start thinking as they are approaching the end of high school and like evaluating if these friendships will still exist and these connections will still exist. I I thought that that was really well handled and also really relatable. Yeah. Something really cool that I, I read um, on Wikipedia. So take that as you will. <laughs> but I read that uh, Chandler Levac has described the film as being based in part on her own teenage job in a video store but she said that she chose to write the central character as male out of a desire to push back against the popular notion that women filmmakers can only tell female oriented stories. Good for her, man. And I, and I found it incredibly relatable nonetheless. Right. And I, and in some ways I related to Alana and some ways I related to Lawrence and in some ways I related to Lawrence's friend. And I thought that was really well done. And I think that this film would make a great, um, double movie night with eighth grade. I was about to say the exact same thing. I feel like, and I don't want to blanket statement this and say this is the end all be all, but I'm so compelled by male characters that are written by women. Mm-hmm. Cause I feel like they just get at the heart of the things that at least I'll say, I'll speak for myself that I'm wouldn't necessarily articulate very well or know how to articulate mm-hmm when it comes to my emotions or my feelings or maybe the thoughts I have in my, in my head, there's so many male characters written by females that I, I just, I've really enjoyed. I'll, I'll say like first cow is an example mm, of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like eighth grade, I feel like Bo Burnham was so respectful of writing, a writing a female character and didn't want to just, Actually, this might come up in the last film mm-hmm. that we watched. I, again, <laughs> connections, right? Like, what does it do to chant? If you're fictionalizing a truth about yourself, a true experience, a true time, but you don't actually want to make a biopic or, or, or a work of creative nonfiction, you want to channel yourself into something new. Yeah. I actually think having that layer of distance allows for something stronger yeah i think it either needs to be and i'm going to talk about this in the last film we watched this week either fucking fully commit to it being creative nonfiction, yeah or do something like what bo burnham and chandler levac have done with being like these are true experiences of mine in a new story yes and I, I that was such a like me making the connection on the fly while I was talking, and you're you're so you're absolutely right. Yep, it's gonna be what Shit what my sticking pot. point was in in the final film we watched. Yeah, but I really love this, and just like you know, just to like humble brag, <laughs> good do it, uh, do it. Like Chandler Levac shared our one year anniversary post on Instagram. It's like no big deal or anything, <laughs> yeah, but no, like it's fine. It's, and even like cool. commented on it. It's like no big deal. And I mean it is because I, I'm guessing that she's friends with um our friend with Joe Coin and he <laughs> like tagged her in it. But still kind of cool. Yeah. I mean it's I'm like, not blushing. Don't worry about it. It's that. like it's like no big deal. It's not a big deal. But like, you know, like being famous is also <laughs> like no big deal. <laughs> yeah, like we're super famous and if you didn't know that I, I want to end this with saying it was a 
cool experience to watch this with like three people we've met through the movies. Mm-hmm. And um, we've watched a few movies at Metro lately with our new friend Elliot. Elliot with one T. Mm-hmm. You're Elliot with two T's. You got it. To differentiate. And as soon as the movie ended, they kind of looked at, they were sitting right in the middle of the five of us. They looked to one side, looked to the other and said, no notes. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's true. No notes. Um, I think this is a great film regardless, but I think it captures something really, really special for the Canadian millennial suburban movie loving came of age in the aughts that we are. Yeah. And I'm really thankful for that because there have been lots of films. There is something special about it being Canadian. Yes. That like there's a degree of being unable to connect fully to these American films. And and I just I'm really thankful for this one for existing and I and I'm excited to watch it again. Yeah. I I agree. I think that's really well put. Um and uh I'm really grateful for you because you helped me unpack this film after after we watched it, we were on the drive home because I really want to watch this again because while I did love it at the end of it all, I felt, I found myself in my head, my head a little bit, just kind of, you know, when you read that synopsis to me, um, I started getting a little bit worried that this was going to start leaning into a licorice pizza direction. And I really did not like licorice pizza and what it did with its characters and I was worried that that was going to start happening here. And thankfully it didn't. And it went so much deeper and was such a more compelling story with all of our characters. But I just got so in my head about that. And you kind of helped me unpack that after the fact. And I've reflected on it since. And I would really like to revisit this so that I can just relive it, not having that those thoughts in my head. I think that, you know, and I don't mean to keep, connecting it to eighth grade but i just really do think that they would make a great uh twofer um both those movies but i'll speak specifically to this one there are some uncomfortable moments because life is fucking uncomfortable Mm -hmm. people say things they shouldn't say yeah people do things they shouldn't do people regret things that they say and do Mm -hmm. um and this film allows for that messiness Mm -hmm. and it's not always resolved but that's real life yeah. Um, but I, I, as someone who also did not like licorice pizza, um, I just, I, I, when I read the synopsis, I was also worried that it would get into that kind of territory. And I was like, I'm not going to like it then, even if it's an amazing movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but so many people that I know also wouldn't be thumbsing up a movie that has a plot with an adult and a child mm-hmm. falling in love. Yeah. Um, had liked this movie that I was like, Oh, I don't think it does go there. And so I kind of had already convinced myself that there's no way it does, or these people wouldn't have liked it. Mm. So, but yeah. you didn't know that. I didn't know that, but um, yeah, I, like I said, I was grateful for unpacking <laughs> it after the fact to help me feel a little bit better and love the film You're even welcome. more. Thank you. Thank you. So one year anniversary of our podcast, we went and saw I like movies because damn, do we like movies? How did it make you feel? So seen. So enthralled, so grateful about you. Yeah, echoing on that, it made me feel a very beautiful, simultaneous fondness and annoyance at my teenage self. (laughs) Yeah, Teenage self, yeah, man, freaking God bless him. Because sometimes I'll think back to very vivid memories I have 
of just moments of when I was a teenager and things I said or things that I did. And I just like, ugh, man, just want to flick myself right in the forehead. Okay. So I wanted to watch a matinee on, on Saturday and, uh, I, I got two mystery movie picks in a row. Thank you for letting me do that. I am giving, I am letting you have two in a row. Only fair. But uh, my second was the 1971 animation adventure comedy, Bed Knobs and Broomsticks. Uh, it was directed by Robert Stevenson, and Ward Kimball was the animation director on this. And then, oh my God, there's so many writers on this thing. Uh, the animation story was written by Ralph Wright and Ted Berman. Screenplay was by Bill Walsh and Don DeGrady. The book was written by Mary Norton. Man, the frickin' probably the only woman involved in this film. <laughs> and uh, Ken Anderson uh, was uncredited, but a part of the animation story writing as well. The synopsis is an apprentice witch, three kids, and a cynical magician, con man, search for <laughs> the missing component to a magic spell to be used in the defense of Britain in World War II. <laughs> I sing songs from this movie randomly quite often. And I've been wanting to revisit it for a long time just to see, because I watched it a lot as a kid, uh, just to see how how it holds up, if it holds up and whatnot. But uh, yeah, what do you think of Bed Knobs and Broomsticks? Can, and can we just start by talking about how this is a, a grandparents house exclusive? Yeah, I film? said to you, like, I only watched this at my grandma's house. And all I really remembered about it was the Substitutionary Locomotion song and the bed. Like that's about yeah. all that I remembered, and I, we do quote I, it a lot. And, and like, say, like for me, like the, again, this was exclusively at my grandparents' house. I did not own it anywhere else. I I would always watch it there. I watched it a lot, um, and I knew the songs pretty well. I remembered this movie decently well, but I was I got kind of excited when you said you didn't remember it as well. It's like kind of like the last film of the week that we watched. It um it kind of has like two movies going on in it. Yeah. Like one is this like kind of grounded even with the witchcraft element of it story of these like kids and this woman and post-war or like not post-war sorry midst of war Britain. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden there's this like goofy ass animated Isle of Namboo. Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. Sequence. And I did not remember that it had a like extended animated sequence in it. And, you know, I didn't really like Roger Rabbit. Didn't really like that part of this. It got real gratuitous. It gets really like Alice in Wonderland-y, but like that's not what the... And I friggin' love Alice in Wonderland. I know like Hot Topic Girl TM. But this wasn't like that the whole time. And all of a sudden I'm like, why did we go from this like pretty serious bleak wartime stuff to this? Like I'm a fish in a top hat and I am bright green. <laughs> like, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I think this movie's too long. Yeah. They padded this fucker big time. It's just to, like, sh just to flex. Honestly, it's, it was just a flex showing like, look how we can have fucking people. Honestly, interestingly, in an animated though, interestingly, interestingly, Elliot, this movie was longer and it was set to have its premiere at Radio City Music Hall, um, but they had a Christmas show that ended up running long and so they were forced to cut the movie down. And I guess this wasn't the first time that this had happened to the Sherman Brothers where they had to cut their movie to fit it into the premiere time because 
the, sh- the show that ran before ran too long. And so they didn't renew their contract with Disney because they were sick of it. And so they cut a couple of musical numbers, one of which is like gone for good. Like, no, there's no copy of it anywhere. Oh, interesting. Um, Whoops. But it's already too long. So I think and that's the other thing. It's like, is it like the first musical number, I think, is not till half an hour into it. Yeah. And I'm like, shit or get off the pot. Are you a musical or are you not? Are you animated or are you not? Are you a psychedelic 70s movies or are you something else? Like, I, I, I compare this to Willy Wonka. Mm-hmm. And that just like leans into its like creepy psychedelic silliness vibe the whole way through, and this like tries to be a bunch of things. Like it tries tries to appeal to like the the grandparents and the children, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I have to be honest, it didn't really work for me. I'm curious thinking about the grandparents of it all. Like, do you think that they really liked it? I think and they like Angela Lansbury. That's that's all the only connection I can make. I don't know. My grandma's grandma's dead, so I can't ask her. Yeah, uh, man, I don't know. I mean, I agree with you. This is super padded. Uh, Watching older live-action Disney stuff kind of makes me feel icky because I just feel like all the going-ons that you hear about, and And it's like all white dudes. And there's a couple things like... Well, one one thing that makes me feel icky is these three kids never acted in any... I think one of them acted in a couple things, but two of them never acted in anything again, so I'm like... Hmm. Hmm. That always makes me feel a little like what happened. Yeah. I don't love that. Also didn't love there's a cat in it with a great name, Cosmic Creepus. <laughs> Hilarious. But the cat looked really not well. Brutal. Yeah, like, like it's like I, too skinny. It's got like patches of fur missing. Matted. And I'm like, either you did that to the cat, which is fucked, or this is a really not well cat. And having that on screen is also fucked because you're making it hiss. You're making it run away scared sometimes. Like, what are you doing? And there's a scene where Angela Lansbury picks up a rabbit by its ears. And I'm like, oh, no. Yeah. Like, that's not. So, like, that makes me. I'm just like, I don't feel like the animals were treated well on this set, which means probably the children weren't treated well, which means probably nobody was treated well. Which is also fucked because, like, I bet they were, quote unquote, treated well for the time. And if at the time it was fine picking a rabbit up by its ears, you can go fuck yourself. This is why, um, even though I don't love CGI, I'm totally okay with all animals in film being CGI. Yeah. Because like animals are not here for us to put in our fucking movies. Yeah. Like I'm really glad Last of Us did not bring in the animal that it brings in in the finale. Mm -hmm. But we didn't need real ones. The CGI works fine. What about, this is kind of funny, coming hot off a conversation about Wendy and Lucy. How do you feel about that? I feel like because it is more slice of life and because Lucy is Kelly Reichardt's dog. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying there should never be real animals on film ever. Yeah. But I'm saying if we don't need there to be, why would we? Yeah. And like, like, don't put them through the shit. Like, I'm sure like Homeward Bound. I bet that was terrible for those animals. Yeah. Like fucking dunking a cat in a in water and throwing dogs in pits and shit. Ugh, it's making me upset talking about it. Um one of the other things that I So at first when we started watching this I was like you go England Eglantine? 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 Eglantine Price. She's like the single older lady who like wants to be a witch who like Killer house. Yeah. And there's this great sequence where she's like supposed to ride the broom like a lady. And then she's like, fuck that. I'm going to ride the broom how I want to ride the broom. 
And she's like, and I don't like children and like, it's all great. But then it just turns out this movie's propaganda. (laughs) It's military propaganda. It's we should all be in nuclear families propaganda. Like, like there's actual language of like, you're our mom, you're our dad. Yeah. Which like, I love me some found family and I can totally be on board with like an older woman who hates kids coming to like, you know, Paddington. Yeah. Coming to realize that these people mean a lot to her, but does it need to be mom and dad? Does there, does there need to be a dad? As I say on our show called bad dad, <laughs> rad dad. Um, also like this, like, gross undercurrent of nationalism and like this movie is in the 1970s made but set in the 40s and like it doesn't feel like it was made in the 1970s no it feels like it was made in the 40s (laughs) which is also because like angela lansbury rest in peace but like she feel like if she's in something it just feels really old it's because she's perpetually old yeah like couldn't figure out how old she was in this movie but I don't know. Yeah, there's just some like, there's just some iffy stuff. And there's even this like sequence where we're like, oh, there's, I think there was brown face in that. Yeah, which is, which sucks because the whole sequence that that's a part of is not horrific. There's good intentions there and like a really cool showcasing of different kinds of people, but it's just a bunch of white people in brown face. That's not good. (laughs) Yeah, I don't, yeah. That's what I'm saying. Older Disney movie, live action Disney movies in particular. I'm just kind of like. Ugh. It's got kind of a Midsommar opening, though, which I which I dug. It's great. Um, yeah. And there's like individual parts of this that I liked, but like it's too long. It's too much propaganda. I'm just going to keep singing that one song. Do you want to do you want to do a. Laguna McCoy's. I'm doing the spell. I'm not singing the song. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing the spell. Um, I don't want Disney to come for us. <laughs> that's actually probably true. The song is good. The the music in this I really like. It just shoots me back to a time of being at my grandparents' house. And it's just a nostalgic trip. I think I'm gonna rethink my rating on this after this conversation. <laughs> I'm not. Was, I'm not trying to harsh your vibe. No, I was like, I was. Re- I was really generous with it because yeah, I gave it like a seven out of ten, three and a half out of five. Um, but no, it's, you're right. Like it's, it's super padded too long. Um, there's just some icky stuff about it that really upset me. It was nominated for a hell of a ton of Oscars though. I can see that did win any. So it was nominated for best art direction, best costume design, best score, best song and best visual effects. And what song, uh, it wasn't substitutionary locomotion. It was something else. It wasn't Portobello Road. Those were my two favorite songs. What the fuck? Um, it won for visual effects, which like, honestly, it's really impressive. I just like didn't think it needed it. Like, yeah, there's a whole bit about how they actually end up getting the spell. Yeah. And I'm like, why did we need that bit in the middle then? Just so you could have these visual effects? Like, yeah, yeah, that's just it. And that whole visual effects sequence. And so that it can appeal to kids, I guess. Yeah. It's just like, look at us. I don't know, man. I'm I'm happy to revisit it. And like this was a week of revisiting things that we quote because we quote Carrie a fair amount too. We we often do the we're all sorry, Cassie. <laughs> yeah. um, and we do say they're all gonna laugh at you. <laughs> we we quote those two things a lot. Um and you do I think the two things you quote so often that make me laugh are this both spells, this and the mummy. <laughs> yes. 
two very different films, two very similar quoting mechanisms. Yes. Um, there's a little bit of charm here. Yeah. 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 And I like the psych- psychedelic bed moments. They're kind yeah. of cool. Yeah. This is all right. <laughs> yeah. It's all right. How <laughs> did make you feel? It did make me feel a nostalgia, but one that I don't really feel the need to revisit again soon or ever. Yeah. You? It's kind of changed over the course of this conversation. So I'm going to say it made me feel nostalgic, but also kind of icky. Sorry I ruined it for you. No, it's not you. Um, I think that there was probably some truths about it that I needed to talk out (laughs) and reevaluate in my brain. And I'm glad that we did that. That's that's, that's why we do this show. It's important. (laughs) All right, last smackaroonie. We've alluded to this one. And how everything that's come before it this week somehow ties into this. <laughs> we watched the 2022 drama The Fablemans. So it was directed and written by Steven Spielberg and co-written by Tony Kushner. Uh, it stars Michelle Williams. So we had two Michelle Williams this week as Mitzi Fableman, uh, Gabriel LaBelle as Sammy Fableman, Paul Dano. Yeah. As Bert Fableman, we realized during the Oscars when he said his own name that we've been pronouncing his name wrong. Uh, Judd Hirsch as Uncle Boris and Seth Rogen as Benny. The synopsis, growing up in post-World War II era Arizona, young Sammy Fableman aspires to become a filmmaker as he reaches adolescence, but soon discovers a shattering family secret and explores how the power of films can help him see the truth. What did you think of the Fablemans? Before we get into that, just want to share a bit of an anecdote that we messed up watching this a little bit. Yes. (laughs) We were supposed to go to Metro Cinema to see it. And we're like, we're both convinced. We're like, yeah, it's at 930. It's a late show, but we're going to go check it out. Um, I think I was a little bit, I don't know. I I felt, and this is probably silly. I felt weird going to see it before the Oscars because I'm just, I felt like it might be competition for everything everywhere. And I'm like, I don't want to give this my time because I'm, I'm all invested in everything everywhere. Now we're post-Oscars. Fablemans didn't win anything. So I'm like, okay, yeah. Now I can be excited about seeing it and not worried about seeing it and be like, oh, fuck, this is good. This might win. Um, But yeah, we were supposed to see it at 9.30. It actually started at 9, and we realized that at 8.55. So whoopsie. So we rented it at home. But I was looking forward to this. Um, If you listened to the show before, you know that some of Steven Spielberg's movies are some of my favorite movies of all time namely jaws and jurassic park but i wouldn't say that you're like a steven spielberg stan we were no. looking at um just apple where we rented it at like everything he's directed i've actually seen very few of his films and most of them i'm not all that in. like i don't want to see lincoln i don't want to see munich i don't want to see war horse or whatever like mm-hmm. there's a lot that i'm just not interested in yeah um I didn't really like Close Encounters. Um, me neither. And maybe, I don't know if we just didn't get it or if we just needed to see it at a certain time. Yeah. I don't know. And you you don't love E.T. No, it's fine. It's my namesake. You, yeah. People have, been, <laughs> people have been quoting it at you too long, but Elliot. War of the Worlds is a slapper, though. Friggin' lo- There were some that as we were looking through it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot he directed that. But Yeah. Minority Report. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot lots of them. He's he's made a lot of movies, but I wouldn't say that like you're all in on Steven Spielberg, but he has no. made some of your favorite films. Yeah. He like he may he knows how to capture some magic. 
And I will say that this film was beautiful to look at. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly any moments that had light. Yes. Like both in looking at like the projection light, but also um, mimicking or mirroring the projection light in other non-movie parts of the film. Mm -hmm. Really beautiful. Like it's very, it is, it is very well shot. Yes. Um, and like, I did not know a lot about Steven Spielberg's history. I knew that when he was young, he would run around with a super eight camera and film stuff. Mm-hmm. So I knew that aspect of it. But again, like something that was kind of in the back of my mind, because this is, this is autobiographical like this to an extent, like this is Steven Spielberg's life growing up and his kind of journey to becoming a filmmaker. But the thing that was kind of just in the back of my brain the whole time of of this, and I don't know, I, I, I have to imagine that he thought about this and recognized this, at least I hope he did, is just the, the privilege that he had <laughs> growing up of having access to these cameras and being given cameras and the ability to just focus on doing filmmaking all the time and having no kind of hindrances to him wanting to chase being a filmmaker. Well, there's an interesting part in the film where one of the sisters says like, you should make movies with like a woman as a hero or something like that. Yeah. And like looking at his oeuvre, <laughs> uninterested in doing that. <laughs> yeah. He is uninterested in doing that. Um, so this is where it got tricky for me because it is really beautiful to look at. And I struggle with, this is I think also my struggle with biopics. In knowing that this is, kind of his life but also he it isn't steven spielberg it's sammy fableman yeah i kept like and i know that you know more about steven spielberg than me i was like did that happen did that happen is that true and like i'm getting so pulled out of it by being like what's true and what's not because it's this in between of autobiography and fiction um which is perhaps complicated because it's about someone so famous like i i recognize that after sun is one of my favorite movies and it's also got an element of autobiography to it mm-hmm. but i think they're done very differently mm-hmm. i think after sun leans into the fact that this is a subjective truth yeah and this film almost doesn't even want to admit that that's inherent in it right that like this is steven spielberg's version of his life as he is fictionalizing it with a co-writer as opposed to being like, this is my subjective perception of something that happened to me and the emotional core of it. And that's what I felt was lacking. I did not feel an emotional core. I have to be honest. Yeah. Like here's a couple of things I want to say is like, I felt compelled the entire time through this movie. I did. I really enjoyed watching it. And at the end I was like, this is fine. Yeah. Like I just feel where after son was not afraid to dig into the raw emotion, you know, of what Charlotte Wells was trying to say or wanted to put across. Like, I just, I felt so much realism. I felt this, I felt her story wanting to come through. Fableman's felt like it was pulling its punches. Yes. It felt like, I agree because I'd be like, there's these moments where I'm feeling invested. I'm feeling ready to dig into the messiness. And then it, restrains itself it's like it like fableman's felt like it was walking on eggshells and that it didn't want to like it didn't want to step on any toes like it didn't want to upset anybody like it's like i'm gonna delve into like the emotional hard hard how hard something was 
But then like that, that's it. It's like, I don't want to go too far. I don't want to upset anybody. So this is interesting to me because I, yeah, when the movie ended, I was like, okay, but like, how does Sammy feel about his mom? Like, how does Sammy feel about his dad? How does Sammy feel about movies? Like, I kind of felt like I didn't really get it. And the film also kind of feels like two different movies. Like one is very much, very much integrates both of his parents and his feelings about them into his movie making journey. And then all of a sudden it feels like it just becomes like, and Sammy in high school. Yeah. And, and less connected to that. Now I wrote a review on letterbox where I talked about that. It felt like two separate movies to me. And then I had a shower and while I was in the shower, I was like, Oh, but there's this like really interesting scene with his uncle Hmm. where his uncle talks about there's family and there's art and those two things pull at you. Mm-hmm. And I was like, so is the film intentionally having half the film be about family and half the film be about art? Mm. And I'm like, okay, maybe I get it then. Maybe I get it because I didn't get the final scene. But then I also, but then I thought, because I'm like, okay, if I get, I get it. Perhaps that was the point and in, in which case it actually makes sense and it thematically works and it artistically works. And yet if that's the case, I think the film is suggesting that Steven Spielberg has chosen art over family and that Steven Spielberg as filtered through the character of Sam has used art as a distancing technique. Mm-hmm. And yet I don't think the film is actually that interested in exploring what that means. That's just it. It's all just surface. Like it feels surface to me. I know. I, yeah. Just like it's, it's so disappointing because I was engaged in every second of it. Yeah. And I think it is beautiful and I think it is well acted and I'm going to forget about it. Yep. Like it's just not nothing in it is going to stick with me. And yet every yeah. everybody did everything well. It's what the dialogue's good. It's beautiful to look at. All of the acting is really incredible. I thought particularly Gabriel LaBelle. And if IMDb trivia is not lying, here's our connection to I Like Movies. He auditioned for that. Really? According to IMDb trivia. Okay. Interesting. But uh, IMDb trivia has been proven wrong before. Um but yet I just know that in a year I'm not going to remember this. Yeah. And like, I, the, like they were all people I enjoy watching. Um, I can't believe Judd Hirsch was nominated for best supporting actor for like 10 minutes that he's in the movie. It was a really powerful 10 minutes. Like, yeah, he does a good but job. Like, but I felt, I felt a little complicated about Michelle Williams's character. Um, just because like I said earlier in this, in the episode, I've grown to really like her as an actress. I think she's really incredible. I just felt like the treatment of her character was a bit odd. I just, I felt like the way that she was written was a little bit confusing. And I feel like that's a byproduct of the not wanting to go too deep. Like it just felt or like. Or not being able to, just like not. Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe, yeah, maybe just didn't want to do this kind of deep dive of true feelings about his mom. Like it's there, but then it stops. Yeah. And then I and then I read after the film that he had a really strained relationship with his dad and he blamed his dad for a lot of the things that happened in his life and that he has talked about that he feels subconsciously that a lot of the like dad stuff that's inherent in all of his movies comes from that. Mm-hmm. And yet there's n- very little about that in this film. Yeah. And it's like it re- <laughs> not to make this about myself, but when I write, I write creative nonfiction and it tends to be about my dad and my mom. Um, And I had a piece that I wrote 
when I was in high school that like was pretty like was willing to tackle the messy relationship I had with my dad. And then I changed the ending. I kept the piece, but then changed the ending when I was applying for a creative writing class in university. And the prof was like, yeah, I didn't, didn't like it, it felt disconnected. And it's almost like that's what's going on here. This like retroactively applying new feelings to something that felt different at the time. Right. I don't know. I mean, like, very jerkish of me to critique Steven Spielberg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and compare his like, work tell, to my own. Tell a record. better story about yourself. But it just it just didn't land for me. And there's a lot of people that I that I have very similar movie taste to on Letterboxd who this really did land for them and they really loved it. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't do it for me. So I don't know if it's just a me thing. Well, and it's so interesting too because we're kind of pitting two stories this week about people that love movies. One literally titled I Like Movies. And I just, I got, yeah, there's just, I think you said it earlier, there was just no, there, there was not enough emotionally in, in the Fablemans for me to to pull anything out of me. Like I, I, I felt myself and I felt myself like I had to work really hard to try to get to an emotional place that just never came. Yeah. And uh, maybe it's that whole thing of like, there's this one moment that goes a little bit surreal mm-hmm. and I wanted more of that. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But in terms of, yeah, like you said, two movies about movies. Mm-hmm. I liked, I like movies a lot better. Me too. One of my favorite parts of this movie is there's this really great cameo. <laughs> yeah. Um, worth it for that alone. And it is worth it. It is. It happens really close to the end of the movie and it is worth the price of admission. Just for Did you cameo. see our friend Devin's review of this movie? No. It said glad Steven Spielberg and I agree on who the best director of all time is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Really. Um, and the I actually quite like the final shot of the movie. I think it's it's, it's a little meta. It's it's fun and it's silly and it's sweet, but it also doesn't really vibe with the rest of the film. Very true. Yeah. I don't know. I'm I feel like such an asshole for being like, oh, this really well respected director, and I didn't like his movie. Yeah, he's finally like sharing his life story with us, and it's like, eh. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Stephen. But if this is your jam, like, good for you because you were able to find something on a deeper level than we were able to find, and if that resonates with you. Fucking awesome. When it comes to like, like, I don't know. I feel like Celine Scamma has done my ultimate like exploration of complicated mom stuff and petite mama. And Charlotte Wells has done my ultimate exploration of complicated dad stuff with after son. And like, if you can't hit that level for me, it's too, it, this, the competition is too steep. I'm sorry, Steve. You know what? To go back to what I said earlier in the episode, maybe if he had partnered with a woman writer instead of Tony Kushner, could have brought there's something a, there's out a great scene in I like movies where they talk about that. Like I feel I, I mean, who knows, but I feel like there could have been a level of elevation there on an emotional plane that could have been really good. So here's the uh here's the takeaway from this episode. More women in film, more diversity in film behind the scenes and in front of the camera. Yeah. Not the official rad wreck, but the best one of the best rad wrecks. Yeah, I'm not proud of the fact that all of the movies we watched this week were directed by white people. 
fuck? Well, I had, I, I very specifically, I very specifically, because I recognized that that's what was happening and I knew that we were going to go see the Fablemans. My mystery movie pick on Wednesday, which we ended up not watching a movie, was not going to be directed by a white person. And then we didn't watch a movie that night because we were tired. And then you asked to do your own mystery movie pick. And I picked the fucking all white men made movie with yeah. brown face in it. So really, Christ. really, really not proud of that. We try to make sure that that's not the case. Shit. Um, regardless of this being a show or not, it's just something that's we try in our own movie watching to not exclusively watch white stories. But yeah. we will do better. Yeah next week hopefully maybe Ooh. i'm glad you called that out because yeah that's that's stinky poo poo it is stinky <laughs> i don't poo-poo. like that stinky poo poo on our part yeah oh this is me <laughs> i forgot uh how do the fablemans make you feel uh it made me appreciative of the craft but wanting a, just a little bit more from the storytelling a little bit more emotion yep agreed what about you uh it made me consistently, but ultimately forgettably engaged. Yeah. Sorry, Steven. I really like Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. Okay. That Those were the smackaroonies. Now, from all of the smackaroonies, let's pick some dads of the week. Hey, ready. Who, who is your bad dad nominee? I feel like we got Do we want the a 3 2 one. one it? First name, last name? Of the character? Yep. Yeah. Three, two, one margaret, margaret white. white of course margaret white from carrie yes. what like one of i'd say in the hall of fame of bad dads oh yeah of all time one one of the all-time worst what do yeah. you what do you got uh she's ab- abusive just like full stop <laughs> I, I have that too <laughs> uh she's incredibly controlling like there's no room for her child to question the way things are to push her to question the way things are to grow in their relationship as parent and child, um, which I think is one of the worst things that a person in a position of authority, regardless of parent parental authority or not can do is to control limit restrict and be unwilling to accept questioning. Like there's that really incredible scene when like Carrie, who is this meek person says like, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? And know what you're saying is not the truth. Um, and I was reading in my research that a lot of the way that ways that Margaret interprets biblical verse is like is incorrect, and that was done on purpose. Like that, uh, people who do value and and use the Bible as a tool in their own philosophy do not interpret it the way that she does. Right. Um, and that that was done on purpose so that even from a Christian perspective, it would be like this woman is not great um but it's that sense of like controlling her with no room for her to have any ability to question that is so awful and even though this is a you know according to piper laurie and over the top performance that sense of control from an authority figure or a parental figure authoritative control with no room for growth or questioning is very rampant in our world and i think it's dangerous yeah, I, I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. You've echoed a lot of what I'm, what I've put down. Um, it's just she is full of inherent cruelty. Yeah, and why the fuck would you want that from a dad? Yeah. Ugh. All right, Margaret White, don't, don't be, be our dad. dad. Who's your rad dad of the week? 
Big Jack Traven. <laughs> kind of a rad daddy, but go for it. Um, I mean, if you have a better rad dad, I'm definitely open to naming him Daddy of the Week. But because like, holy shit, Keanu Reeves is so attractive. <laughs> I really have not allowed myself to feel that because like my sister had the corner on him. Is that how you say that? Had the, I don't know, had dibs. Yeah. <laughs> my sister has dibs on Keanu Reeves. Your sister called know. shotgun on Keanu. <laughs> yeah, Britt really called shotgun on Keanu Reeves, but uh, she's married and you you allow me to have boyfriends. Allow me. That's gross. And I feel like the um, fact that had, we watch so many movies allows you to have. I'm taking dibs back. <laughs> <laughs> Keanu Reeves is friggin' gorgeous. And I, and I think you agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd love to give him little kisses. So if he can't be <laughs> rad dad of the week, Jack Traven can be daddy of the week. But before I acquiesce in advance, I think that Jack is incredibly communicative. Yeah. Um, I think he's kind, but he gets shit done. And he also enables other people to get shit done. Like he, the way he works with everybody else on the bus and like the way he communicates with his boss, the way he communicates with his um, like SWAT partner is just like really great. Like I think it's something we could all learn from is the way that Jack Traven communicates to everyone, like people in authority, people on the same level as him and people that technically he has authority over. Um, really, really like, really like. Who's your rad dad? <laughs> uh, I picked the security guard from Wendy and Lucy. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah. He plays a significantly smaller role than Jack Traven in Speed, but the moments that the security guard is present He's just so kind. He seeks understanding and asks questions. Um, He's helpful. And I feel like he's also really thoughtful. And there's a selflessness to him and the things that he does and his decisions that he makes and the way that he presents himself to uh, Wendy. He's one of the most memorable, memorable parts of that film for me. Yeah, I I totally agree. I wish he had a name. Does he not? <laughs> no, it's okay. he's just he's in the credits and on IMDb as security. security guard. Okay, well, kind security guard from Wendy and Lucy. <laughs> Be your dad. dad. Man, you acquiesce so fast. <laughs> but like that's because you're gonna let me name Jack Draven Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I forget we, we we like once named a sad dad and have never done it again. <laughs> Sometimes I forget that we have that category of daddy. Keanu Reeves, ooh, baby. Like, you are so beautiful. (laughs) And you seem like such a cool, nice person in real life. Um, I love Bill and Ted. Yeah. I love The Matrix. I love Speed. I I love my own private Idaho. Like, but as Jack Traven, daddy of the week. Week woo. Okay. That's, that's great. <laughs> um, okay, Rad Wreck of the Week. So a little bit about me. Uh, I, I, I am, uh, I'm in the middle. I've mentioned this on the show before. I'm in the middle of getting an ADHD diagnosis. Um, at this point, really convinced that I got it um, and that I have had it for my whole life. 
um, and I am seeking better understanding about myself, how my brain works, and how I kind of navigate the world with ADHD. But something I'm really grateful for is when I'm able to find something that can help me articulate thoughts and feelings that I have in better ways than I can articulate it or even just articulating it full stop. So um, the Red Wreck of the Week is a, uh, a YouTube slash TikTok channel that I've recently come across called ADHD Love. It's ADHD underscore love. And it's just this couple one who is neurotypical, one who has ADHD. And so it's, us. Exactly. Um, just kind of laying in a relatable and sometimes comedic way the contrast between how a neurotypical person goes about their life and how somebody with ADHD goes about their life. I've never felt so seen. <laughs> if If I wasn't convinced that I had ADHD prior to watching these videos, I would be pretty convinced that I have ADHD after watching these videos. But... After watching them and just hearing some of those comparisons and looking at and hearing the things that they talk about and the way that they navigate those things within their relationship as well as their day to day, it helped me through showing you some of those videos of like, oh, like this is how I feel when this is happening or this is what goes through my brain when we enter a situation like this. And I felt like by showing those to you that you got a bit of understanding from that. And I think that's, I mean, that's why we do this show is the way that art can enable us to have honest, important, beautiful, messy conversations that maybe we wouldn't have had an entry point for otherwise. Mm -hmm. And I feel that way about After Sun, that like it helps me to have conversations about grief that I haven't necessarily been able to like articulate mm -hmm. and i think that from a tiktok video to a feature film it's all fucking important mm -hmm. in helping us find entry points of conversation and helping us feel seen or helping us see things that you know i watch those and i'm like that isn't me and it's helping me to see the world in a different way mm -hmm. i think all of that is important yeah uh i couldn't have said it better myself but yeah, whether or not you do have ADHD or you have somebody in your life that has ADHD or is uh, not neurotypical in other ways, um, the channel is just, the videos that these folks put out is just really lovely. They're funny and they're sweet and they're sad. Yeah. And, and they got like, I don't know if they're British or what, but great accents. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they're great. ADHD underscore love on YouTube and on TikTok. That's Rad Wreck of the Week. Check it out. That's it for the Smackaroonies and the Dads and the Rex. Yeah, we did it. Got through another one. Thank you so much for listening. First episode of year two of this podcast. So grateful to still be doing it. Thank you for everyone for all the love you've shown us in this last week as we continue on. Yeah, here's to another year of Bad Dads and Rad Dads. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Until then, you can follow us on Instagram slide into our DMs at baddad.raddad. You can get a sneak peek of what we've been watching on our individual letterboxed accounts. We've got some usernames in the show notes for those. And we'd absolutely love you forever if you could share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. 
that's going to do it for these hot shots this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot and my dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. Bye.